Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So, how are you? How are you doing? You've just kind of gone through a cycle, you know, of coming out of the silence and then going into the talking and some activity. Most of you, maybe not all of you, have engaged in some talking and engaging, but I think for the most part, most of you came into that kind of some sense of excitement, meeting people again, talking, engaging, and then coming out of that back into the silence again and having a chance to really experience what happens when you move from the activity into the silence. And did you feel that? Did you get a a sense of what was happening internally? Uh, How was your mind? Anybody want to say? Busier. Busier. Anyone else notice that? A little busier? Maybe not. Do people not notice that? Increased distraction, that's another way of saying it, yeah, yeah. I actually found it really sweet going back in. Sweet to go back in. Back in. sweet to be out, but it was also yeah. especially sweet to be <laughs> Sweet to be out of that noble silence, but very sweet to go back into it, yeah. Yeah, anything else? And you notice anything in your body? found it difficult to go back in. Can you say what was difficult? The distractions are so compelling. Mm-hmm. Like what like kind of distraction? All the thoughts from the conversation uh-huh. and thoughts about the future in relation to the conversation and related thoughts to the past. <laughs> As if that is me. And yet I've experienced in this retreat that I can yeah. Yeah. Very good. So so hard to let go of all that happened in the recent past, all that's getting projected into the recent, the, the near future, and maybe further future, and the mental activity, and how hard it is. Just as you said, the sensation of being, just to feel back into the sensation of being. A lovely way of saying it. And this is really a lot of what you're going to experience when you go back into your daily life, when you make those pendulations from the silence to the activity, the silence to the activity, t- assuming that you take the time to sit and uh, come back into the meditative uh, form some of the time, which is so important, so that you have a chance to kind of come back and balance yourselves, recharge yourselves again. So I want to just check in with you a little bit and just see how was it, the actual talking piece for you? Because we don't often have an opportunity to practice mindful speaking. We don't do that so much here on retreat. For the most part, we're practicing noble silence and how to be with ourselves in the silence. But to actually come out and then to engage with others with a mindful attention also takes a great deal of practice. 
I know James spoke to you a little bit this morning about that, and we just want to check in with you and see how, how was it? How was that aspect of your practice for you today? Anybody like to comment on what they noticed? Yes. Um, James did a really good job of prepping us for it, because, and it was, it was really scary, actually. Yeah. Um, because it, then I you know, started going into all the fears and judgments and... And fortunately, the first person who talked to me spoke in appreciation. And I was like, wow. <laughs> Can everybody hear? Because we don't have a mic. Um, hmm. We have a mic, but I don't know if we want to use it. Uh, okay, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm just aware that... I was finished. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so talking about how uh, feeling a little awkward, a little bit scared, and, and uh, yet the first person who spoke talked about appreciation, and she felt so relieved. You know, okay, this isn't going to be so bad. <laughs> Thank you. I felt much more relaxed in my body because I didn't have to worry about laughing. <laughs> he said he felt much more relaxed because he didn't have to worry about laughing. And if you recall, he made the comment the other day about having, feeling like he had to restrain his laughter and his humor during the meditations. And now you can let it out, let it go. The worry about it got me sort of bottled up. Yeah, the worrying about it got it bottled up. <laughs> Good, so more letting go here, yeah. Rio. I'm so glad that you talked about that because it's just really as a reminder for us as well, the potency of being together in the silence and that deep connection that can happen that you certainly felt. And interestingly enough, you felt so connected you didn't even feel that you had to go and speak with them. There was something that felt very deep and profound for you, and yet you could, and then that would deepen the connection as well, most likely. Or, interestingly enough, sometimes when we begin to speak to people, (laughs) it sort of breaks it, because then, you know, we start to find out other things. We get into our habits and our conditioned reactions, and something may get a little shifted there. But thank you. Yeah, I'm going to just go over here, because sometimes we stay on this side. That's really, it's a wonderful observation 
of recognizing a pattern of, in the past, of trying to figure out which me do I need to be so this person will like me or connect with me, Uh, my redneck me or my vegetarian me, or what was the third one? Academic me. (laughs) And realizing you could just be yourself. You didn't have to figure it out. What, what was, how was that? Well, it was cool to hear what I said. <laughs> <laughs> she said it was cool to hear what she would say. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like you're, you're finding out who you really are. You're not even sure what you're going to say when you're just yourself. How beautiful. And it's like in that respect, every moment is a, is a, a surprise or a, a, a new opening is fresh. How beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, just one or two more. Yeah. Well, um, I was thinking whether I should post on my channel or not, but I guess I can say a word or two. Um, but I, just, I still have my habits, old habits coming out, and the mind kind of moving much, much more faster. meditation I learned, more in the deeper in the body of had it, that yeah, that causes pain, but the present the pain is happening in this moment. It's a reminder to ground myself in the body. After even after the damage is done. Mm-hmm. But you know what I mean? I have to explain this. You're doing beautifully. Thank you. That's beautiful. Finish. Consciousness is already, uh, the price is already here, the pain. But then why give price 10,000 times? Why mm-hmm. feel? And, and, um, and it's much easier to yeah. It's much easier just to be in the present, in the even if there's pain. That's beautiful. So the reminder of the pain's already there. So just ground myself in the body, come more firmly into the present, and hold yourself in that way. No judgment, no blame, no expectation. Beautiful. Hold your pain in tender compassion. Beautiful reminder and teaching for all of us as we leave the retreat today. Hold your pain in tender compassion. Yes, one more. I love what James said last night. I was thinking about it uh, this morning with holding one's intention before speaking or while you're speaking. And just noting it, and uh, and I found myself doing that this morning so easily because I guess because we've learned to focus so well. 
and, and I was trying to project how do I do that in my normal everyday life. I mean, it, it takes that extra couple of seconds, I think, somewhere in our mind. We're just sort of noting the intention in a conversation. Mm -hmm. And when everything is coming at us yeah. at 100 miles an hour, suddenly that extra second isn't necessarily there. Yeah. So that was, that was the little fear that came up. For yeah. Yeah. So, so what you're pointing out is something really important in terms of our practice, particularly with speech. He's talking about how uh, the recognition that sometimes you just need a, a, a second, just a couple of seconds to co- kind of go back and collect yourself to get a sense of what your intention is for speaking. Where, what are you setting in motion in that moment through the speech? And sometimes life is just coming so quickly that you don't have that second. It doesn't feel like you have that second. For our practice, we do as much what we, we try as hard as we can to get that second. Because that's the mindful pause. We might call it the mindful pause. And when we're practicing, we need to slow down just a little bit. Because life will pull us into that momentum of rapidity and speed and everything happening really fast. But our practice is that we, we can just... A lot of times, just slow down just a moment. Take a moment. Just don't let that thing just run out of your mouth or, you know, say exactly what's on your mind. Just pause for a second. And it's a great practice to do that. And then just settle for a moment and then speak. I think for the most part, we, are, we feel a little anxious about silences. You know, when we, just to sit for a moment, to stop for a moment, take that time, and then respond from a place where we feel a little more connected. We feel where we're more connected with our truth. So it's actually a practice in mindful speaking. And it's called the refreshing pause or the mindful pause, where we just stop for a moment. And, and that's a very important part of our practice in general, is the slowing down around speech, around activity, around the ways we move in our life. It's a, a really crucial piece, and I'm really glad you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk a little bit, uh, the three of us, about the, uh, bringing this practice, as we have in, just for the last few minutes, about bringing this practice more fully into our lives. Because you're already doing it. You know, This morning was a good example for you of how we begin to bring this practice in. Yet everything that we've learned, everything that we're doing here is a practice for our daily life. I think for a long time, when I was in my early days of practice, the being on retreat and going back into my daily life seemed like two worlds apart. I just, it was so difficult to find some way to integrate those two and make sense of how they related to each other. Um, and yet I think we, as teachers as well, over the years have become much more sophisticated in understanding that and teaching that integration piece, taking time for the integration piece, so that more and more we can see that in some ways there really isn't any difference, and there doesn't need to be any difference, because what we're practicing is paying attention, is mindfulness. I call mindfulness the golden thread that golden thread that weaves through every experience, moment to moment to moment, the ability, the capacity to be here 
for the sights and the sounds and the tastes and the smells and the touches and the feelings and the thoughts, our reactions, all that's occurring just to be here, to practice that present-centered connection with ourselves, both being attentive to what's moving through the mind and also what's moving through the body at a sensation level, at an emotional level, to see if we can be open to what's occurring as we move through life, just as we were doing here. We're not trying to get anywhere, necessarily. We're not trying to create any particular experiences or special experiences. As we come more fully into the present moment, everything that we want opens from there. It's everything we're looking for is here, is already here. And so the whole practice is orient us, orienting us back here, where then we can open and expand into the ever-expanding and boundless present. And that's where we want to be. That's where we are. We just want more recognition of that truth in our lives. I think that's the spiritual longing. That's the spiritual awakening, is to fully be where we are now. So that's all we're doing. We're just practicing this present-centered attention in everything that we do so that we're not creating these divisions. We're not creating the sense of separation of this and that. You know, this is better than that. And sometimes when we leave retreat, we can, you know, get back into our daily life and our patterns and our personalities and all of our ways of being and we go, oh no, it's back, you know, I'm back and I, I wished, I thought I was going to leave that back at the retreat, you know, but then that's what happens. Our patterns and our personalities show up again. As soon as you start to talk and as soon as you start to relate again, there you are. And so we could imagine that what we need to do then is get back to the retreat so that then we can have that experience again of letting go or letting ourselves go. But it doesn't really work that way. I mean, the more that we can see that every moment is an opportunity for the practice of mindfulness, then there's, there's nowhere we have to go. This is it. This is it. This moment. This moment is our most precious moment. Right here and now. Everything that we need to look for, to understand, to recognize, it's all right here. Don't need to go any further. And so we practice this really with this attitude that every moment is no more or less important than any other moment. That means even when you're sitting on the sofa, feeling a little sad or confused, it's a precious moment. Or if you're just standing in the grocery line, waiting for the clerk, and you feel very impatient because you got a hundred things to do. Impatience, impatience, agitation, restlessness, here I am, this is it. Or driving in the car and, you know, getting angry at somebody. There it is, that pattern of aversion, of anger. It's all right there. Or feeling the openness and the love and the connection when you see somebody who just uplifts your heart. Wow, feel that. 
how beautiful, how wonderful. It's all there. And so, so this is the meditative attitude that we begin to cultivate so that our life becomes a meditation. Our life becomes resonant with the Dharma in every moment. There's nothing outside. There's really no distraction. Even a distraction is the arising of the Dharma, is the arising in, within our meditation. And so we can begin to expand out our whole concept, our whole understanding of our meditation practice so that we don't create these divisions, these distinctions of this and that. i got to get here. I'm, I'm better when I'm over there. I'm not so good when I'm over here. This is, I like that experience better than I like this experience. It's really more of this attitude of learning. What can I learn? <laughs> what can I learn right now? about myself and about my life and about the world and about the universe and about the Dharma? What can I understand? What can be revealed to me right now? Just this moment. And so that's where we go in our practice. Hopefully, and we really encourage you, to take time every day for formal practice, for formal meditation practice. This really is the foundation for us to take at least, and this is very modest, 20 minutes a day. I mean, I, sh- I know sometimes I have the, the superego of my teacher saying, 20 minutes? Why are you saying that? You know, say 45 minutes or an hour. You know, but I know that many people have very busy schedules and, and we want to create something realistic for ourselves. So I say minimum 20 minutes because that's what ta- it takes a little time for the mind and the body to settle from all the impact and all the stimulation from the day. It takes 10 minutes, 15 minutes, maybe if you can even get a little bit below that threshold. We can't expect much more to be going on because there's so much impact that comes at us as as Russell said, through the day, you know, that we just, as we sit, it just settles. It has a chance just to settle a little bit. And we might be able to contact a calm and tranquil place within ourselves. But not to expect it and not to think that something's wrong with you, that you can't get into a calm and quiet, still, empty place in the first 20 minutes of your meditation. It's kind of the time to stop. I think of meditation as a time of stopping, just stopping all that momentum of all that's rushing in through the day and just connecting more deeply with the center, with our center of our being, a little bit more authentically, a little more truthfully. So 20 minutes, 40 minutes is better, 45 minutes if you can, every day as a way to keep that continuity, that continuum of our practice alive. James was talking last night about the power of intention. And this is what we need to really cultivate as we go back into our daily life, to reflect on where are we placing our intentions for awakening Where do we place our intentions for freedom, for enlightenment, or whatever word speaks to you? So we can have the intention to sit for meditation each day, or the intention to take time for silence, time to 
to be alone and quiet each day, particularly after the retreat. The intention to keep contact with the teachings in some form through books or through tapes or through coming back to retreats or day-long retreats if you can or meeting with teachers uh, when they come to your community or to your area if they do um, going to public talks or whatever uh, how he's going to talk more about contact with the uh, spiritual communities um, it's like you have to kind of keep your hand um, not your hand in the fire, that's not the wrong metaphor. But <laughs> <laughs> so stay close to the, to the, to the, what? Hand to the wheel. Hand to the wheel? That's too close to samsara, I'm sorry. The wheel of samsara. <laughs> where, the, where the heat is, the heat from the light the light of consciousness, of the radiant, blissful, illuminating light of consciousness itself. Where is that vibrating? Where is that radiating in your life? Stay close to that so that you can have that reflected back to you more and more and more so you can wake up to your own inner light, your own inner purity of consciousness. Um, I want to... I'm aware that I could go on probably another hour, but I, we don't have so much time. And um, they'll pick up with whatever I've left out. But I want to uh, read this poem from um, Naomi Shihab Nye, which is sort of my goodbye gift at the end of most retreats because I love this poem so much. And I think it's a really good reminder for us as a way of integrating our understanding of what's important in our lives. It's called The Art of Disappearing. When they say, don't I know you, say no. When they invite you to the party, remember what parties are like before answering. Someone telling you in a loud voice they once wrote a poem, greasy sausage balls on a paper plate. (laughs) Then reply. If they say, we should get together, Say why. It's not that you don't love them anymore. You're trying to remember something too important to forget. Trees, the monastery bell at twilight. Tell them you have a new project. It will never be finished. When someone recognizes you in a grocery store, nod briefly and become a cabbage. When someone you haven't seen in 10 years appears at your door, don't start singing him all your new songs. You will never catch up. Walk around feeling like a leaf. Know you could tumble at any second. Then decide what to do with your time. Walk around feeling like a leaf. Know you could tumble any second then decide what to do with your time. Thank you. I don't know if I'll have a chance directly to give you my appreciation for your practice and for the sincerity of your practice and your commitment to, the, to your own freedom and awakening that is not only yours but affects the entire world. So thank you so much for being here, and I really hope to see you again. Thank you.
I want to echo a few things that Sharda said about um, about keeping the the flame burning or staying close to the flame and how everything is uh, everything one needs for practice is uh, is here and now and uh, this is something that I share at most every retreat, but it's something that made a huge difference to me in terms of my my own sense of how to keep the flame alive in my own life. And it has to do a little bit about noticing how I think. And James alluded to it last night, that wherever your mind inclines, that's where that's what we experience as the fruit of, of our life. And... What I had a habit of doing at the end of retreats was becoming quite anxious and scared about taking my little practice into my big life. (laughs) And I would create a picture in my mind of this big life. And then I would start to feel really small. And what I found when I framed my experience of transitioning on retreats from taking my practice into my daily life I felt as though I always failed. But then I had a, a revelation. And the revelation was that, that I always stay right where I am. And that my big life comes to me. And that I don't have to go anywhere. And that all I ever have to, all the, the only place I ever go is to this moment. I may imagine myself to go many places, but I'm always actually right where I am. Even when I'm blazing down the freeway, I'm right where I am. And it dawned on me a a reframing of the whole model of integrating my practice into my life. What worked better for me was integrating my life into my practice. And in that way, I just have to stay where I am. Stay here and now. And and in that same stream, I I realized that, uh, that I'm continually creating Mount Everest in my mind about all the things, the to-do list, everything that has to be done, and then I get anxious. And I, it's easy for me to forget. There is no Mount Everest. I mean, there is literally Mount Everest. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there really is just this moment, even if you're climbing Mount Everest. <laughs> I don't do all of Mount Everest at once. I do step by step. And I can't take care of the step that hasn't happened. And I can't take care of the step that's happened before. So what am I left with? A continually unfolding present. And I really don't have to move at all. I'm tempted to tell a story, but I don't have that much time to talk. But maybe James will tell it about Punjaji. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) No, you have to tell it. No, no, no. Well, many of us went to see this teacher. I'll do it quickly. Many of us went to see this teacher in India many years ago in early 1990s. And I went, both Charda and I went many, many times. And, and uh, who had a very deep impact on me and on lots of people in our scene here. And James, in his great spirit of generosity, took a video camera and, and taped the whole the whole event, all the questions and answers and the dialogues and this and that. But finally, before he was leaving, he, he asked Punjaji one last question. 
uh, if, or at least if he would say something to all those people back in, in the West who would be so interested to hear his teaching. And so Punjaji, in his, uh, in his um, impish, with an impish grin on his face and, a, and kind of mischievous, he looked into the camera and he said, stay where you are. <laughs> Of course, we know that has, that has multiple levels of meaning. <laughs> but it really is that it is such an amazing trigger and such an amazing reminder. And I don't know anything that reminds us more to stay where we are than contact, as Sharda was saying, surrounding yourself with, with beings, things that reflect back that value. And the, there's nothing more that I've seen that has supported my practice than, than being with Sangha. I've been leading a group now for, for over 20 years in San Francisco, and if not for that ongoing contact, I really notice when I'm away from that group in my life, I, I get deluded. And there's something that diminishes in that, in that Dharma juice, and there's something about having that contact. And, and I, I'm just reflecting the words of many people who've said that to me, what an important place it is in their life. And as most of you know, when the Buddha was asked by his chief, uh, his cousin and chief attendant, Ananda, isn't it true that half of the, uh, the spiritual or holy life is keeping good company? The Buddha responded by saying, not true, Ananda. It's the whole of the holy life. It's, it's not the third refuge, the third jewel for nothing. It really is the, it's, it's the secret nectar of, of Dharma is to keep good company. This is not meaning that you should avoid all other beings. <laughs> this is not to join a cult or a, you know, become a, you know, isolate yourself. But it's to make sure that you get that kind of nectar, that kind of food that I think is really needed in a in what I call this world uh, that is a dharma desert, you know, where there is not a tremendous support for. Um, for awakening, where the dominant paradigm is doing, becoming, accumulating. Uh, so, Sangha, very important. The, if you live in the Bay Area, this is Dharma Mecca. Every part of the Bay Area has sitting groups. If you live outside of the Bay Area, find your local sitting group. It doesn't have to be a Buddhist sitting group. It can be Quaker, it can be any place where people gather for the purpose of awakening and reconnecting with their hearts. If you don't have a sitting group in your town of any sort, start one. Uh, uh, Play tapes, occasionally invite teachers to do classes, retreats, whatever you need to do to awaken that um, and support yourself in your practice. Let's see. If you have some doubts about, um, I I have three Three things I want to read real quickly. If you have some doubts about the capacity to keep mindfulness alive in daily life, I want to read a poem that I just received from someone who's she's now in the in the DPP in the Dedicated Practitioners Program. But this poem she wrote while she was sitting. She said, "I started to write this while uh, waiting for taking the BART to the East Bay to meet a friend." for dinner, and then refined it a little the next day. Over the last two weeks, I've been noticing a lot of outward movement of my mind. Okay. But this is really what came out of her, sitting 
at the BART station waiting for the BART. Which is a subway. What's that? Bart. Oh, BART is the Bay Area Rapid Transit, yes. like the subway system. That... Stealthily, my old friend Envy pays a visit, shuffles into my consciousness with a miserly glance. Sometimes I don't notice at first, but I can tell because my stomach feels fluttery and unsettled and my countenance turns dour with furrowed brow and pursed lips. Invisible arms reach out again and again from all corners of my mind, grasping, failing, getting frustrated, wanting something I can't or don't have. The grasping leaves me off balance, teetering forward on the edge of insecure. Thoughts arise I don't have. How come I don't have? They have. They're better than. They're luckier than. I'm less than. Soon I feel small, mean, green, weebly, wobbly, petulant, it's when the dissatisfaction sets in like a persistent fog and breathing feels like a chore, ah me, and I'm grasping at so many things outside. I feel like many tentacled thing. That's, that's when I realize my friend Envy is here. So I go inside a while, retracting tentacles to cradle curiosity, to see what thoughts arise, what sensations arise, how it comes to be, how it changes, and to probe the contours of this experience. And eventually, curiosity satisfied or maybe just bored, I let go of its cloying sameness and return to the breath. It can be done. Don't think that you can't practice even meticulously sometime in daily life. And James will probably say more about that. Um, I'll just skip to the, my last uh, tradition that I have of sharing the, the uh, poem that um, it's really a recommendation to to think in terms of uh, non-harming, noticing your mind, keeping the precepts as a gift to yourself, to others, uh, watching your speech, actions, etc. Just day to day, really making the intention, making intentions, as Sharda said, as James said last night. Every day, I and every time I sit... May this sitting be for the benefit of all beings. May my practice be for the benefit of all beings, or teaching, or whatever I'm doing. May my life be for the benefit of all beings. I used to think that that was, that was just kind of rote. It was something somebody told me to do. And then it really, I started to feel taken over every time I got to the point where I said, may my life be for the benefit of all beings. And there's something to it, to using our conceptual mind to plant those seeds of what we want so much in our lives, our deepest yearning. So last but not least, just the the prayer that I share for um, staying awake. Dear Lord, so far today, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm very thankful for that. But in a few minutes, Lord, I'm going to get out of bed. And, and from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot of help. <laughs> so, ask for help. Ask for help. Anyway, thank you so much for your practice, your generosity of spirit, your goodwill, and, um, and hope to see you again on the, on the Dharma Road. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, ready for number three? Um, 
First, I want to say some practical things about your leaving the retreat. You might have seen just in the uh, in the little of uh, little conversation that you've had how much gets stirred up and where the mind can go in just a few moments. Um, these next few days, be very very kind with your process because you are wide open. You will see all the beauty around you and you'll also see all the not so beautiful around you. You will go through, if, you're, if you do go through, it's very common and typical to go through energy swings where you've got a lot of energy. Yeah, just let me at life. And then you might find that and after a while you might crash. Okay, You just take care of yourself. Really keep in mind monitoring your energy and the stimulation and be very nourishing these next few days as much as you can. Um, you know, with a hot bath or um, soft music or something that really creates some ease and space, walking in nature, sitting. Um, be nourishing these next few days. And then for the rest of your life, uh, I can keep that going. But particularly the the non-judging part, even more than the mindfulness, just notice whenever you find yourself contracting or getting disappointed, be kind. Um, Usually the rule of thumb is to give yourself as much time as a retreat to kind of come back and and decompress and and integrate. You'll be able to do everything you need to, um, but just cut yourself a lot of extra slack for this next week. Um, And mood swings also, if you go through mood swings, like, God, I was so centered. I thought I was going to be centered now, you know. Let go. You'll go through everything and just, again, hold it with tender compassion, whatever you're going through. Um, As far as um, sitting, I'll just put my little piece in. You know, we all have our own approaches, and so there's no hard and fast rule. And Sharda shared her rule of 20 minutes a day. Mine is, um, is even more doable. My pact with myself is that I will get into the posture sometime before my head hits the pillow. Think you can do that? Because getting into the posture is the hard part. Once you're there, it's usually, oh, this is kind of nice. I don't recall in the last 30 plus years meditating and afterwards saying, I shouldn't have done that. (laughs) So it's just, it's this mystery that we have that, you know, it's so hard to get there. And once you're there, it's like you're remembering, you're, you're reconnecting with your interior world, you're reconnecting with the Dharma. It's a way to kind of pay your respects to the Dharma and, and honor that, which is so important to you, uh, which you've been touched by. And when you sit, as you've heard me say, let go of the report card. Once it's over, it's over. You're just putting in your time. 
That's the only way that sitting can be a source of pain if you've got some kind of evaluation of how you think you should be doing. And I found it very helpful early on when, when my teacher said, just putting in your time like you're either you know, punching a time clock or logging your time in. You put your time in, your butt on the cushion, let the Dharma take care of the rest. Sometimes I think of my Zafu as a, as a compost heap. I hope that's not too <laughs> blasphemous, but just kind of letting go of all the accumulation and the earth can take it and turn it into um, fertilizer, enriching for, for awakening. If you start to feel discouraged because your practice doesn't look like you think it should, you've lost the very, the very best ally and friend you have. I remember Trungpa Rinpoche saying, if there's a conflict between you and the Dharma, chances are the problem doesn't lie with the Dharma. <laughs> but to take a look and see how you're using the Dharma or your definition of practice to to either measure up or not measure up. Let the Dharma be something that nourishes you. And certainly, if you can sit for 20 minutes or you know, longer, that's wonderful. But do it because you're giving yourself a gift, not because you're going to be a good boy or a good girl if, if you do, and bad if you don't. And it's never too late if you haven't sat for a day or a few days or a week. It's never too late to start again. Okay, that... In mind a few a few other um, reminders or things that I find really helpful, as as uh, Howie said, good friends is so helpful. Howie has a sitting group in San Francisco. If you're in Berkeley, we sit on Thursday nights uh, in Berkeley, uh, and it'd be great to sit with you here. Things at, at Spirit Rock. Uh, by the way, there's a, a flyer out. I'm going to do a day long later on this month on befriending ourselves, our greatest gift to the world. Really seeing how loving, bringing some loving kindness towards yourself is a is a bodhisattva practice. And there's flyers out there. Um, I'll just mention a bit about Spirit Rock while I, while that's that's. Uh, uh, up. This is a really very special place. I, I hope you um, you realize just how blessed we all are. This is like primo Dharma Center. You know? <laughs> Somebody said it might be a little bit too cushy. You know, where's the toughness of Burma and Asia? And well, you know, it gets tough enough in your mind anyway. But um, this is. So, so wonderful that so many people have been, so, have been touched by the Dharma that wanted, have wanted to create this center. And we hope that you consider it your spiritual home. Um, and come here for retreats, uh, come here for day-longs, come here for uh, all events, and feel part of a community. And there's many, many different ways that you can plug into community here. One of them, by the way, is uh, Kalyanamita networks of small groups of uh, oh, six to ten people or so. And in the new Spirit Rock newsletter, there's an article about being part of a, a Dharma support group. Um, and it takes your, uh, your support, everyone's support, to, to keep Spirit Rock going. So 
if you get when you get a, a request to support our programs, um, think of it as supporting your programs, not just those guys in Marin, but it's all of our um, our Dharma uh, community. Uh, and there's things like the stewardship circle where you can monthly see your contribution on your your uh, your credit card bill and feel really great. Oh, Spirit Rock, among all the other things, you know, Macy's and Chevron or whatever, you know. Oh, Spirit Rock. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, just to feel part of this. Retreats, by the way, if you've just, this is your first retreat, each one is different. So, not to think, oh, I got the idea, and, and uh, it, it keeps on getting more and more interesting. The first time I did a, a three-month retreat, my parents nearly kind of flipped out, right? <laughs> but the second time I did it, they said, didn't you get it the first time? <laughs> Each time it's like this, this exploration, deeper and deeper, and you go in here deep, and then you have something to bring out to the world, and it's... It's, it's quite a mysterious process that you pick up where you left off. So um, I, I hope if you just got a little bit of a taste uh, or a, a big taste to know that you're at the tip of the iceberg you know, and it gets more and more fascinating. So having good friends, coming to Spirit Rock, other helpful uh, supports that the Buddha talked about are leading, like I said last night, an ethical life. And just to have those guidelines of the precepts as wake-up calls when you're doing something that might be, you don't know whether it's cool or not. Those guidelines are really good good, uh, supports, not commandments, but just see, oh, when I create harm or suffering, there's a reverberation. Not that you can make everybody happy. You will disappoint people just by living your life, but intent, not intentionally to cause harm. It's really helpful. Your speech is a very potent area of practice. And the guideline, the simple guideline, is saying what's truthful, what's useful, and in a kind way, as best as possible. You condition your mind so much by what comes out of your mouth so that's a whole art in itself to be skillful in speech. And by useful, it means getting clear on what your timing is or what your intention is. As, as was said before, why am I saying what I'm saying? And if you're in the middle of a volcano, that's probably not the best time to say, I have some feedback for you. you know? <laughs> to just really feel internally... What's going on? If you can, that pause that creates some clarity to feel maybe underneath the anger is really some hurt or sadness, and that's what's going on. And if you can come from that place and say, hey, I, I feel distant from you, and I, and I, and I don't want to feel that distance, and so I want to share something. I, I need to, to talk with you. If somebody hears that, they're probably a lot more open to hearing what you have to say than you know, hey, you really ticked me off and here it comes. Ready? So just getting clear on your intention for wise speech. Something else that, uh, that the Buddha talked about is um, not only 
being careful with the unwholesome, not getting into the unwholesome places or states or when they come to be able to mindfully hold them, but to cultivate wholesome states, to develop and look for the goodness in yourself and in life. And when it's here, when you're feeling joy or you're feeling calm or you're feeling delight, to really be present for it. That the more you can be present for it, the more life you give it. One practice I've been doing for many, many years from Neem Karoli Baba is keeping on looking for the good. Because the more you look for it, the more you'll find it, both in yourself and in others. If you have a tendency to look for what's wrong, you will find it. And if you have a perspective that people are stupid jerks, you'll get enough confirmation as you look for it. But if you look for, as he said, keep on tuning into the good, even if you see all the the foibles around, if you look for it, you not only are seeing it, but you draw it out. Just like when somebody is looking and you know that they're seeing your beauty. They might know all your foibles, but if you can feel their seeing you, how do you feel? Don't you feel beautiful? Well, you can do that for others just by what you look for. Not all the time, and it's not something that you've got to you know, uh, be on a crusade, but just for your own, your own joy and your own gift to others to keep on looking for what's good in them. Even when they don't see it, you can remind them and awaken it in them. Last support that the Buddha talked about, remember impermanence. Everything is changing. No matter how good you get it, it's going to change. No matter how awful things are, it will pass too. That's okay. You can hold it all. You can be here for the ride instead of trying to get to any one place and have your life fixed and together. It will do its own thing. If you keep on reflecting on impermanence, there's an ease and an openness that comes from that. Uh, I want to say one other thing, and then we can uh, maybe have a little bit of time for for questions. Um, And this is, um, I want you, we all want you to know um, some, a little bit of news uh, so that you won't be, you know, um, bombarded with it. But um, you should all know that um, Katrina has been on everybody's minds these last few days. It's been, um, it's been quite, it's been really bad. And uh, actually, um, there's been tremendous uh, devastation and so this is something for us to, um, to just hold and know that um, there's a lot of suffering right now. Uh, New Orleans is um, 80% underwater. And, um, you know, lots of, lots of people, they don't know how many, but lots of people 
have have died, and and uh, there's a lot of um, questions about the response uh, that that was our emergency response, and the fact that um, the people who are mostly impacted are poor and uh, people of color, and uh, this has been in the news all over. So there's going to be quite a fallout from this. Um, and, um, yeah, it's not only on, on people in our country's minds, the whole world. You know, I, was it, you just said Kuwait just sent in $500 million as offering. Yeah. And the response has been, everybody has been so, um, um, it's a wake-up call for priorities, for what really matters. So hopefully there'll be some good that, that comes out of this. Uh, but I thought before we, we go on to uh, our own uh, re-entry, we could just take a moment to uh, send some loving kindness to all of those people. And know that Katrina is, uh, and, and what we are experiencing here is something that has been experienced in Bangladesh, and Indonesia, and Somalia, Nigeria, where disasters happen, life happens, suffering happens, and compassionate reaction and response and real caring comes out of that. Now we can just focus on the people in that area. Just sending in whatever way is in your heart, sending some caring and loving kindness. May all who are now in suffering be helped and be healed. May they feel our caring and our love. May we learn and wake up to compassion and caring. May all be held with loving kindness and compassion.
So that, that does put things in perspective. And uh, one thing that I like to keep in mind is um, life is made of 10,000 sorrows and 10,000 joys. And just because there is sorrow or suffering in the world doesn't mean to stop opening up to the joys and the goodness and the beauty. Because the more you can, it's like we have that as our gift to the world. We can be moved and we can uh, feel our caring and it can be held in, in equanimity that says, yeah, this is part of life too. And then to keep on seeing the, the beauty and the, um, the wonder of life as well. It's not one way or another. It's both. <clears throat> so, let me just open up some questions. Any, any questions about anything, about practice, or uh, as you're going, going back, we can take a few minutes before we go. Yes. Talking about near and dear people, about your experience who are not in meditation practice. First of all, I would encourage you uh, to be very judicious about your experience with everyone. Um, Because if you've been touched by something really profound, you don't want to be saying it over and over and by the ninth or tenth person it's just a story. There's something very precious inside. So you want to just save what's really important for you or maybe for the one or two people closest in your life that it seems relevant to share and not making it into a story. Uh, as far as those who, who might not understand what you're into, you know, mostly when somebody says, well, how was it? They just want to know you're okay. My, our friend Guy Armstrong says his prescription is just saying, it was great. <laughs> but, um, but to just be really um, careful and hear what they're, what they're interested, what they can hear, but not to lay a trip on them and saying, oh, wow, I discovered you don't exist. <laughs> and guess what? Life is suffering, and there's a way out of suffering. Okay. You know, you want to be really laid back. As, as, one person, uh, as, one, as one person who wrote to Ramdas with all of her difficulty, she went back to her home in, in Canada after coming to, uh, to learn Buddhist practice and was very touched by it. And her family was a fundamentalist Christian and they thought that she was possessed and went through all kinds of uh, uh, machinations about and they brought in somebody to do an exorcism and everything. And she's writing this letter and, and she said, you know, how hard it was. There's this and this and this. And she says, but you know, it's so amazing. My parents hate me when I'm a Buddhist and they love me when I'm a Buddha. Don't be a Buddhist. Just be a Buddha and let your 
practice speak for itself. And let them be, you know, if they're interested, they'll ask you. Okay, F- common finding a common language because the, the, the jargon can just get in the way. In fact, when Jack Cornfield was first coming back to uh, to America, and uh, and he asked, he said, said to Ajahn Chah that he would probably do some teaching, and he said, "Do you have any advice?" And Ajahn Chah said, "Yeah, you might call it Christianity." <laughs> It doesn't matter what you call it. There's some basic truths. Basically, you know what we've been been talking about? Pay attention. Be kind. That's what we were told when we were little kids. Pay attention. Be nice. That's it. And almost anybody can relate to that. So you don't have to get into too much that people can't hear. Bringing God into this practice. You know, it's all just words. So when I hear the word God, I think of it in terms of the Dharma. When you, if you hear Dharma and God is the word that, that speaks to you, it's the word God, as I understand it, at least in Judaism, and I was raised uh, Jewish, is that which cannot be named. So it's just pointing to the unnameable. Sometimes I just call it mystery. So not to let the words get in the way, to find the common language that really moves you or inspires you or inspires somebody else. And that, that, that's as important as anything. And one of the things that as the dharmas come to the West that we're, we're really learning to find that common language. The Dharma is the Dharma. There's a line in the Third Zen Patriarch. It says, there is one Dharma, not many. Distinctions arise from the clinging needs of the ignorant. Whatever you call it, Buddhism, Christianity, the kingdom of God within you, it's just words. Don't let, don't let the finger pointing to the moon be what you focus on. It's, it's all pointing to the actual experience. Yeah. I have a question about a distinction that comes up for me with the loving-kindness practice and the way that I hear it when 
when it's spoken in meditation by one of you is, you know, may all beings have peace. And I'm wondering if there's a difference between that and just stating it as a fact. So when I hear it, it echoes in me as saying, you know, I am at peace. I am. Beautiful. And I, Perfect. Did everyone hear Bree's quote? She said, is there a, uh, she says, when she hears us present it, we present it as, may all beings be happy, may I be happy. And she wonders whether she can make it, because that can imply uh, at some other time. And she wondered if it's fine to just say, I am happiness, I am peace, or I, just to the immediacy of it. And I said, absolutely. That's really what it's, it's about, planting that seed and trying to connect with what that feeling is now. Practice mindfulness, the habit. The habit will hopefully begin to wake you up in the middle of a, perhaps a little, when you're lost a little bit less. But while you're lost, whether it's 20 minutes, three hours, six months, there's there's nothing you can do until you wake up. But when you wake up to really exploit that and really sense the difference, what it's like to be awake. And then use that moment as your gong to say, relax, and look at the view. And then in service of staying awake, find some anchor in the body, whether it's, or any, any sense experience. So, but while we're absorbed in something, um, if there was mindfulness, we wouldn't be absorbed. So it's just... I'll just say one thing. If you find yourself really stuck and struggling, my, my main practice if I'm really caught, is if I can remember it, um, which I do these days, asking myself, what thought am I believing right now? Because as soon as I ask that and realize, oh, I've just created this scary movie, then it kind of, it can disperse. And I find that a very effective practice if you're finding yourself really struggling Long theory. <laughs> the short version is, uh, I just think it's in the in the Jewish value system to be learners, and it's in the archetype to study and to learn. And I would, my sense is that after World War II, it wasn't so safe to be Jewish, and so even Jews internalized a a, a kind of um, a sense that not to be in many cases, not to be outwardly expressing one's Jewishness. And in that spirit of learning, they, they found it wherever they could get it. And, and I would say that the, there's a real value in being, um, in being practical 
well-educated, and the teachings were so clear, so crystalline, and so practical, so accessible, that it's a natural. That's my hunch, but I have no idea. <laughs> Suffering, too, is a, <laughs> is a word that's appealing. You know? <laughs> and it's an antidote for guilt. <laughs> This talk was given by James Barras at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on September 5, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio.